Good morning. How's everybody doing? Doing well. Uh, I'm sure you've all watched uh, movies or a show where you, you have that one character uh, and they just seem to make mistake after mistake after mistake, right? And you, you start to get frustrated with them. You, you get to the point where you're just like, ah, oh, how many times are they going to do this? And then as the, the, it goes on, it, it seems like maybe they're starting to get it right. And then they start vacillating between good and evil. And it, it seems like little by little, they're, they're starting to put themselves on the right path. And you're finally like, yes, that the person has done it. They, they, they've put themselves on the straight and narrow. And then what do they do? They go and make another blunder. They do something stupid. They resort back to their evil ways. And usually at that point in the movie, I've had it with those people. And I'm like, I just hope they get killed off because I cannot take this character anymore in the story, right? Uh, again, it's just it's frustrating sometimes. But, but as we go through God's word today, that's the character we're going to see. We're going to be in Genesis 6, so if you want to open there now. Uh, but again, the book of Genesis and the, the totality of Scripture, Genesis is the history of the history, right? It really establishes the relationship uh, between God and man and, and God's people and lays out, again, all of these promises of what God is going to do. So that way, when we get to the next book of the Bible, Exodus, uh, and that second kind of act of the story, we have a real good foundation on who God is and the way that we are to interact with God. And so far, we've been looking again at God's story, tracking this whole narrative of, of how we see the, the scriptures play out over a year. Uh, and we've looked at the universe was created, man and woman was created, and then we took a look at the fall. That's the serpent comes in and he tempts Adam and Eve and he, he leads them astray. Uh, but God makes a promise that I will crush the head of the serpent, that through the offspring of Eve, there will come that time where he will deal and end with sin uh, that exists in this world. Uh, but Adam and Eve have been given punishment They've been cast out of the garden. They've been cast out of the paradise of Eden. And now they are walking this journey with the life that they've created. So in Genesis chapter 4, we see Cain and Abel come along, the first children of Adam and Eve. And in their worship and in their offerings, there becomes this tension and there becomes this, this kind of dispute, if you will. Uh, and as a result of that, uh, Cain decides in his anger, he kills his brother Abel. And then God comes along and he pretty much tries to deny it. And God says to, to Cain, he says, you're going to be punished and you're going to pretty much just be a wanderer. You're going to be a restless wanderer across the land. And then a little bit further in chapter four, we, we have some information. Uh, we have more individuals that are being born. We're seeing this genealogy developing. Uh, and there's an individual by the name of Lamech, and he's a descendant of Cain. Uh, and he gets into another issue, whether it's self-defense or whether it's revenge. Uh, but he goes out and then he murders someone else. And so we are seeing, again, these fragmented relationships that exist in the scriptures and exist in humanity. So Genesis chapter five comes, and again, we have more genealogy. And at this point now, we've got people living like 800, 900 years that people are living. But again, remember, they're living in the context of sin and broken relationships as they go forward. And so there's this hostility that exists between man and his fellow brother. 
And so now we come to Genesis chapter 6. And let's start reading there. Starting in verse 1. When man began to increase in the number on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married. Any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be a hundred and twenty years. And the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God went to their daughters of men and had children by them, they were the heroes of old men of renown. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Now, this is a passage that gives a lot of speculation as to who are the sons of God, who are the Nephilim. And, and we certainly should do our due diligence. It is important that we do our best to understand the scriptures, that we pray through them, that we get enlightened by the Spirit, that, that we seek out what is the best understanding. Because there's a lot of different ideas that come around of who these people are. But I also don't want us to get so fixated sometimes on the fact that some of these areas we may not know 100% exactly. And instead of arguing and debating and fighting, we don't want to miss the bigger context. So really quickly, just to give you some theories, who are these sons of God? Uh, one of the theories is that these sons of God are actually fallen angels, right? Demonic angels that have come down and have now married women on earth and produced children. Another theory is, is that simply demonic forces have influenced humans uh, and influenced those men, married women, and produced uh, offspring. Uh, or another possibility that the sons of God is actually from the godly line of Seth who ends up marrying ungodly women. And as a result, we produce the Nephilim uh, who are these kind of gigantic uh, individuals uh, in stature and in physical strengths, kind of similar when we think about who Goliath is. So, so those are just some, some quick theories about who they are. But I don't want us to miss the bigger picture of this because we can get fixated on that point of who exactly are these. But the point that we need to understand there, again, is verse five, that what do we get? The earth was full of wickedness, right? That the, the, the population grows, it continues. Uh, but the focus here is that the world is full of sin and evil and wickedness. And it's gotten so bad that what does it say? It says that the heart of man is only inclined towards that evil, right? It doesn't have any good thoughts about them in the process. At the core of who they are, they are bad, bad individuals. So now we continue in verse 6. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and the birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And this is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And now the earth was corrupt and in God's sight and was full of violence. And God saw how corrupt the earth had become for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to the people for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. 
So make yourself an ark of cypress wood, make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. So the earth is full of violence. God's heart is grieved. It's saddened over this. Now, again, when we read this, when it says God, God grieved that he had made them again, we can't look at this again and think, oh, you're telling me that God made a mistake. Because again, God doesn't make mistakes. It's just trying to establish that question, that understanding that God's heart is broken over the sinfulness of man. One commentator wrote it this way. He said, this is God's deep feeling of the distance between the blessedness to which man was appointed and his painful perdition. See, God, we were made in images of God. We were to be image bearers of him. And he put us in the garden and he put us in paradise. And he said, we're going to live in great relationship together. And I'm going to provide purpose for you and provision. You're going to have everything you need in this paradise. And that's what breaks God's heart is that we ruin that. And he had to cast us out of that. But because God's character does not change, what does God have to do? God has to instill justice yet again, just like he did with Adam and Eve. And so what does he decide? He says, listen, I'm going to wipe men off the face of the earth. I'm just going to be done with them. I'm going to rid them because of the violence and evil that exists. This world is so corrupt. It is just steeped in sin. I'm just going to wash it clean. But just as God's character is immutable to his justice. It doesn't change. God's character does not change towards his grace and mercy. Because then what does he do? He finds Noah. And it says that Noah had found favor with God. And he says, look, I'm going to temper my anger here. And I, though I may wipe this world clean, I'm still going to redeem humanity. I'm still going to salvage man and save him. And I'm going to do it through Noah. And so he offers him grace and kindness. And Noah was a righteous man. It was blameless. It said that he walks with God. In Hebrews 11, it tells us that, that he lived by faith with God, that he trusted him. And Noah was an individual that, again, stood out from his time period. Right? For all of the evil that existed, Noah said, I don't want to be a part of that. I'm going to live in a right relationship with God. For all of the evil that exists, I am going to walk and follow the commands of God. And so God says, that's the guy that I'm going to continue my humanity through. And so he says, no, what I want you to do is I want you to build an ark. You're going to build a really, really big boat. And you're going to get your family on it. And you're going to get the animals on it. And then when it's time, I'm going to send the rains. And I'm going to do my justice. But I'm also going to do my grace and mercy at the same time. And so then what happens? Noah gets on the boat. For 40 days and 40 nights, the rains come down. And then after the rains stop, Noah and his family continue on there and they send out the doves looking for land that eventually it doesn't, the dove doesn't come back, it finds land. Uh, and then after probably about uh, over a year or so, eventually the floodwaters will recede. And, and in chapter 8, verse 1, it said, But God remembered Noah and all of the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark, and he sent a wind over the earth and the waters receded. Right. So God calls it. He says, now I'm going to dry this all up. And so, again, after about a whole year of sitting on this boat, he finally lands on dry ground and him and his family step out 
of the ark. And so then in chapter 8, verse 20, it says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, taking some of all of the clean animals and clean birds. He sacrificed burnt offerings on it. And the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. So the Lord says, look, Noah, I, I'm not going to do this again. This is a promise to you that I'm going to make. And Noah, again, he builds an altar. And he gets out and he, he, he makes a sacrifice. And what does it say? He makes it with clean animals. And again, we're going to see that picture later in God's story. And he sacrifices these animals and he makes a burnt offering. And we did a whole series on Leviticus. And again, the, the burnt offering uh, was a voluntary offering between a sinner and, and God. It was, it was a volunteer offering to say, God, I'm, I'm just going to cover all of my sinfulness here. And I'm going to make this offering to you. And you are just going to burn it completely. Because this is a total devotion and a total worship to you. And he acknowledges his sinfulness. And he acknowledges his desire to be in a relationship with God. And so again, God says, all right, Noah, I'm not going to do what I did before. I'm going to make you that promise. And so now we're in chapter 9, verse 7. He says, as for you, he's speaking to Noah, be fruitful and increase in numbers. Multiply on the earth and increase upon it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I will now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all of the wild animals, all of those that came on the ark with you, every living creature, I will establish my covenant with you. Never again will all of life be cut by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between you and every living creature with you. A covenant for all generations to come. I've set my rainbow in the clouds and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the floodwaters become a flood to destroy all of life. And when the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember it in an everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures and every kind on the earth. And so God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on earth. So God blesses Noah and his sons and he blesses the animals. And he says, be fruitful and increase in number. And it's the very same command that he told Adam in the garden that I want you to do. I want you to continue what I wanted Adam to do. And he reminds him again, he says, anytime it rains, anytime it rains and the clouds come, just look in the sky and I will remind you of the rainbow. And that is my promise to you. 
And so man sinned. God brought justice. And that relationship was broken. But then again, out of God's goodness, out of his grace, he allows Noah sacrifice. And that sacrifice is made and that relationship is restored. And then God, God makes a promise to bless us again. And when we read this and we go, this is great. This really feels like it should be the end of the story, right? Like man and God are in harmony again. Everything, he got rid of all of the evil. This should be the end of it. I, I, I shouldn't need the rest of the, the Old Testament. I don't need the New Testament. I certainly don't need Revelation. I, I mean, this is when I'm sitting down with my kids at night. And I'm like, kids, end of story. Kiss you goodnight. It's time for bed. It's over, right? Now, what happens? Well, in chapter 9, what does Noah do? He goes and he gets drunk. And he's lying there naked. And then his son walks in on him. And he sees his father's nakedness. And instead of doing the right thing, what does he do? He snickers and laughs and he goes and he finds his brother and he's like, Dad's drunk and he's naked. Wasn't the point of the flood to wipe away the evil? Wasn't the point to destroy all of that? Again, this, this should have been it. We, we could have had six chapters of the whole book and we all could have memorized those scriptures, no problem. Well, we're not done. Because then chapter 10 continues and there's a whole bunch of genealogies again that exist and the, the population grows and it grows and it grows and then we come to chapter 11. And what happens in chapter 11, verse 1? It said, now the whole world had one language and a common speech. And as men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. And they said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. So the population increases and they're all there and they get this idea and they go, guys, you know what? Let's do something really cool. We're going to build a tower. We're going we're to build it to the heavens. This thing is going to be so big that when people look at it and people hear about it, they're going to remember us and what we have done. It's going to be all about how amazing we are. And you know what we're going to do? We're just going to stay here. We're going to live here all together and we're going to bask in our glory. So what do we have? We have a drunken Noah. And now we just have a generation that's full of pride and a, a big old ego who's not seeking man's glory, but seeking their own glory instead. And by refusing to populate the earth, that is a direct disobedient to the command of God. So then what does God do? Verse five. 
The Lord came down to see the city and the tower that men were building. And the Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they've begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from all over the earth and they stopped building the city. So God looks down and he's like, seriously, are you kidding me? This is what you've chosen to do? You've chosen to seek your own glory. You've chosen to build a name for yourself. You've chosen to disrespect and disregard my commands. I, no, 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 I'm not having this. I'm not going to tolerate this. Because, see, if, if you just stay together, if you just live as one, there is, there's no telling what you're going to do in rebellion towards me. There's nothing that's going to be impossible if you guys put your heads together. And he says, I, I told you to fill the earth, right? Not hunker down for a house party. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to confuse your language. You won't be able to communicate. You won't finish the project. You're going to get frustrated. And then you're going to all go your separate ways. Because that's what I wanted in the first place. So we're going to stop here in the story. But what do we learn from this? What do we learn in chapters 4, 5, 6, all the way up through chapters 11? Well, again, all the way back in chapter 6, what did it say? Here's what we learned. That man is wicked. That man is evil. That every inclination of the heart, every thought that they have is towards sin. They're disobedient, they're prideful, they're corrupt, they're full of violence, they're murderers, they're drunks. And again, the whole focus is on their own pleasures and is on their own desires. And so we're reminded in all of these chapters just how wicked the heart is. And again, we've done a whole series on that, right? We did a whole series on, on I have sinned. And we saw all of the different ways that we sinned again and again and again. We do a really, really good job of being creative in how to sin. But in the beginning of this message, what did I ask you to think about? I said, remember that character in the movie who seems to just get it right and then veers back off course? Well, that's, that's what's going on right here, right? But you know, it's not just in the scriptures that's happening. Because, see, we are those very same characters. You and I may, may have those moments of temporary goodness. You and I may seem to be walking down the, the path towards Christ, and then what always inevitably happens? We stray, we veer, we sin. Guys, we, we are the Adam and Eve. You and I are the Cain and Abel. You, you and I are the, 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 the drowned people in the flood. We are the drunken Noah, and we are the, we are the builders to the Tower of Babel. That is what you and I are. So we can't look at our heads at these people in Genesis and go tsk, tsk, and shake our heads and wave our fingers because we're doing the very same thing again and again and again. Because this is the struggle of man, right? 
This is the struggle of what we see throughout all of Scripture. But there's an overarching storyline to the Bible. And that overarching storyline is that this book is all about the glory of God and his unconditional love. That in in all of this story, that even when we don't live in relation to God, it does not change God's character. Because again, what did we see in all of this, right? We, We saw a promise, we saw a restoration, we saw a sacrifice. God looked at humanity and said, I'm going to wipe it clean. I'm going to send a flood. But in the same token, I'm going to save Noah and his family and save humanity. And Noah gets out and a sacrifice is made to mend the relationship. And then we have the tower where God confuses their language. And understand that when God confuses their language, that was an act of mercy upon those people. And when you say an act of mercy, how was that an act of mercy? Because again, what did it say? That if man stayed together, it would be impossible for them, or I should say, it would be not impossible for them to do whatever they wanted. Well, what is it that they wanted to do? They wanted to do evil. It's not like they put their heads together and said, let's, let's start a soup kitchen. It's not like they put their heads together and said, let's go pick up trash. They put their heads together and said, we want to commit sin. And so in an act of mercy, God said, I'm going to separate you because I don't want you seeking and chasing after evil. I want you chasing after goodness. And so when we sin, God judges. But then what does God do every time after he judges? God blessed. We sin, he judged, and then he blesses. And he reiterates his promise to his children. He said, I made a promise that I said I would destroy sin. I made a promise that said, I will be your God and I will take care of you. I made a promise to you that says, I will never destroy this world the way that I have done before. So when Noah gets out and gets drunk, God doesn't remove his promise. And when the people build the Tower of Babel, God doesn't remove his promise. He continues to remind them that one day through your offspring, I will crush the head of the serpent. And I will fulfill all my promises to this world that doesn't deserve it. But I will fulfill all my promises and they will be fulfilled at the cross. And so God confuses the language and he scatters the people. And when he does that, he says, there's going to be a day where I will reunite all of my people together. And where do we see that? Well, we get a picture of that in the book of Revelation. Right? We, we go from the very beginning, and we're going to quickly hop over to the very end of the story here for a moment. Because John gets a picture of what the throne room of heaven looks like in Revelation chapter 4. And he said, after this, I looked and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. And at once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. 
And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald circled around the throne. Did you catch that word? A rainbow. And then what happens in, in continuing in this book of Revelation, he's surrounded by 24 elders and the creatures and they, they cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And John has a vision of all of this and he's seeing this play out and they're just crying, holy, holy, holy is to the one on the throne. And the one that sits upon the throne is able to sit upon there because he's holding a scroll. And it's a scroll of judgment. And it's the only scroll that can be opened by him. And then in Revelation 5, 9, it says, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. Because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe, language, and people, and nation. Who is the one that sits on the throne? Well, we know it's the sacrifice. We know it's the one that gave up his life. Because when he gave up his life, he purchased us back to God with his blood. And who is it? It's the people from every tribe, language, and nation. It's the people that God scattered all over the world at the Tower of Babel. See, God, God scattered them because he knew they would be in rebellion against them. But he said, I'm scattering you because what I want to do is save you. And so those people cry out in Revelation 7, verse 10, that salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And we know that every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess. Say it with me, that Jesus Christ is Lord. So as we continue to flip through these pages of the scriptures, through God's holy word, as we continue through the story of God, what are we going to see from Genesis to Revelation that we will fail, that every inclination of our heart is evil and sinful? And all this does is exposes who we are, that we are perpetual sinners. But through these very same pages, as we walk this journey together, we will continue to see that God's character never changes for us. And so when God made a promise in Genesis, that promise has continued today. And so every time that it rains and we see that rainbow, it is a reminder of the promise to us. It is a reminder to us that that rainbow doesn't just stretch where I can see it over Telford or over Percocet or over Harleysville. But that is a rainbow that stretches from the east to the west, from the north to the south, that covers this entire world. And it is a rainbow that is a promise about how deep God's love is for us. Let's pray. Lord, the, the beauty of a rainbow is something special. And again, we, we can do all the science to understand it. But Lord, in your divine hand of creation, you establish that when it rains, it is a reminder to us of what you have done in both your justice and in both your mercy. 
And Lord, we are so blessed. Because Lord, every time that rainbow sits across the sky, not only are we reminded of your promise, but Lord, that should be a reminder of just who we are. But yet you love unconditionally. You gave your son as a sacrificer on the cross to shed the blood for us. And Lord, because of that, we have joy, we have hope, and we have an eternity that waits before us because what you gave us was an eternal promise back then and forever and ever. Amen.